This is Lenny Pfeffer from the Dorchester County Council. Even when I can't get to the MACO headquarters in Annapolis, I know I can keep in touch with policy issues by listening to the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with Michael Sanderson and Drew Jabin on the podcast today. Michael and Drew, we are still social distancing, obviously, so we are recording remotely. But Michael, things are starting to open back up, but I know you're still at home with the family. How are things going? Everybody's fine out here. Thanks very much for asking. And Drew, how about you? Good. Annapolis is starting to open back up. More people are out and about. It feels a little more like... A typical Annapolis summer. <laughs> I miss Annapolis, don't you? I, I, I've spent almost no time in Annapolis since March. Yeah, it's definitely weird. Certainly miss it, but I've seen, you know, Main Street, it looks like they're starting to open that up for restaurants, and the governor made some announcements yesterday. Things are going to kick into higher gear, it sounds like, tomorrow here as we record on Thursday, June 11th. But we'll see. Hopefully, we start to get back to the new normal sooner rather than later. Today, we have Drew on because we are going to talk about unemployment and a number of pieces that are in the news right now regarding unemployment. Drew is the Mako guru when it comes to unemployment issues. Very exciting to have you on, Drew. This is a hot topic right now, and thanks for being here. Of course. Very excited about it. And before we get started, I would like to make a plug for the Mako Summer Series. This is going to bring county leaders and others involved with local governments. Timely information, crucial information, it's going to allow them to collaborate, discuss opportunities on a weekly basis. I will link all the information here in the show notes, but this is something new, Michael. You've been at MAKO for a long time. Talk about what precipitated this summer series and why we're doing this right now. I guess, naturally, this is a function of MAKO deciding to call off our big in-person summertime event, you know, mid-August in in Worcester County, folks down in Ocean City with a lot of face-to-face interactions. We fill up the convention center and have a lot of things going on there. We know that we're going to lose a great deal of the value. The things that just happen in the hallway and, you know, in the in the line for the, you know, the lunch line for getting, waiting in line for your salad and baked potato and so forth. There's all sorts of productive conversations that pop up. We know we can't replace that and we don't have any aspiration to deliver the same look and feel, but we do know that our members are sort of hungry for content and value from us and from the kind of speakers and leaders that they're used to hearing from in person at the MAKO conference. So we spent some time, uh, MAKO has a conference planning committee with elected and professional officials from county governments, veterans of our conferences, and they guided us in the direction of rather than trying to do a two or three day jam-packed event where it would be back to back to back virtual meetings and the like, uh, we wanted to stretch this out and turn it into a series that affords us one particular benefit, and that's getting started sooner than, than August. So the, the details are, are on the MAKO website, and I'm, I appreciate you linking them in the show notes for, for the podcast. But we're encouraged by early feedback and registration for these events. 
I think we will have scores of county people, you know, in the digital room to hear about a lot of things that are, you know, some of this is going to be directly related to the pandemic and the economic consequences and how do you respond with A, B, and C. Some of them are just going to be other issues relevant to county leaders, but that's that's the trademark of the MAKO conference and our brand. We want to have something for everybody. I think this series is going to deliver an awful lot of that same kind of feel. The idea here is that we're going to have online educational and dialogue opportunities through live and interactive virtual sessions. This is going to run for nine weeks. It's going to start on July 1st. And Drew, the first session is your session, and that's going to focus on counties as employers during and after the shutdown and that is a perfect transition into today's topic, which is unemployment issues. But when we were talking the other day, it sounds like you have some great panelists lined up here. And I'm really excited, Drew. How about you, just as a policy team perspective? I think this is a great opportunity. We can't replicate the summer conference, the in-person event, but I think this is going to be extremely valuable for our members and, and the broader base of, of Marylanders. I definitely agree. I think that people, like Michael said, everyone's craving information. Everyone's craving a little bit of more interaction. So I think that I'm very excited. It's going to be great. Okay, so again, we will link the information in the show notes, but let's get into today's topic. We're going to talk about unemployment. And this is a big measure of economic strain. We all see the numbers. We see the number of jobs that have been lost through the pandemic. And when we talk about unemployment and we see numbers drop, it's usually associated with a recession or a slowdown, right, Michael? I mean, we've seen massive numbers amid this crisis. We know that nationally the unemployment rate was 14.7% in April. I mean, you compare that with just 4.4% in March, 3.5% in February. Here in Maryland, the unemployment rate was 9.9% in April. And we were at 3.3% in both March and February. And we know, Michael, that Maryland is somewhat insulated. We have a lot of people in the federal workforce, but these are still shocking numbers. And of course, we know that a lot of this is driven by the shutdowns. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, have you seen anything no, like this no. before? Yeah, nobody has. No, right? I, nobody. I, don't think, I, I don't think there's any analog to to what we're going through at, you know, what we've gone through over the last quarter or so. The The really abrupt wave of it, both sort of government shutdowns, but also, to be honest, it's just the, the change in tenor of, of people deciding what they wanted to do. Um, it just turned into whether we were officially shutting down restaurants or people just weren't going to restaurants, the whole service face-to-face -face industry just was rocked immediately in the space of just a couple of weeks. And that doesn't happen. Now, even when you have a dot-com bubble burst or a real estate market collapse or the kind of things that have triggered recessions that we're familiar with, we're used to seeing the economy go from, you know, sort of what we consider full employment at something like three or 4% unemployment. There's always, you know, a few people who are between jobs and have some frictional unemployment, but, you know, to, to go from three or 4% to six or seven or eight, that's a pretty conventional thing that happens over three months or six months and it gradually comes up and we understand that oh the you know the the, the factory shut down the third shift because there wasn't quite as much demand because the economy is slowed down and so there's some people who are looking for work or temporarily laid off and the numbers sort of drift upward but you don't fall off a cliff like this this is a one-of-a-kind experience and that's led to unemployment itself being a centerpiece topic that's why we're sort of building this whole episode around it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's a great point about 
whether or not you're shut down, quote unquote, or not. It's all about whether people are comfortable or not getting back into restaurants, getting back into retail. We'll have to see what happens as, as more states start to open. But Drew, I'm interested, you know, I think there are going to be massive shifts long term here. We know that the brick and mortar industry, you know, going to malls, big box stores, that has been trending downward for a long time. I think that this will speed up the collapse of brick and mortar. More people are shopping online. More people have had to do that. And that's going to mean that this industry is going to have to adapt, right, Drew? Yeah. Oh, definitely. People are going to be teleworking. It's, it's a completely new world. Right. So those people are going to have to maybe get some new skills. That's part of this and, and how that workforce adapts. I mean, Michael, we also know commercial real estate long term, that has a lot to do with the brick and mortar industry, right? You have big box stores, you have malls. That has already also been on decline before the pandemic, but now it's really taking a hit. And that certainly affects property tax revenues at the state and local level, more so on the local level. I mean, just imagine this conversation about commercial real estate, especially retail space for, you know, six months ago or 12 months ago, Kevin, you're at a conference with the, the Maryland Government Finance Officers Association, and they're, they're, the, you know, they're the true green eye shade types who like to have big, lengthy conversations about this sort of stuff. So, you know, talk to a group like them about, well, what's going to happen if, if Sears and JCPenney cease to exist as ongoing concerns, which seems like it's in play, then, like, who wants a giant footprint space for lots and lots of volume retail at a shopping mall in whatever, you know, 1,500 locations across the United States. Is anybody really saying that's what I want to move into? Are there a lot of buyers for that? It's just, I mean, this was already a challenging movement in the economy, and you have to feel like whatever direction we were headed in has just been accelerated by a whole new wave of people discovering deliver direct to home um, with with groceries where everybody's falling in love with Instacart and, you know, uh, these various delivery services and so forth. I, I just, you have to imagine there's a lot of Americans who six months ago had no interest in this kind of thing. And suddenly they found out, okay, I can do this. And actually it's not as terrible as I thought it might be. Right. Consumer trends driving this train in a big way. And then when we talk about productivity in the long term, I think that's likely to take quite a hit as well. Older workers are going to be phased out. Even places that are opening are asking these folks not to come back. Maybe they're more vulnerable to the virus. And we know that older workers are generally much more productive than younger ones. So I'm interested to see how that plays out moving forward as well. That's always been a conversation, but I think it gets accelerated here as well. So those are some issues, I think, long term that we're going to have to keep an eye on and see how they affect the economy. But let's get into unemployment insurance. And we know it's a shock when someone loses their job. And Drew, let's talk about the protections that are in place. First of all, the basic concept of unemployment insurance. How does it work and what is it there for? So on a very basic level, it's a form of social insurance. It's a joint state federal program in which contributions are paid into the system on behalf of working people so that when the, if they do lose their job, they have some sort of income support. Uh, it also helps sustain consumer demand during economic turndowns by continuing to provide money for families to spend and help the economy. So really what it does, it replaces a portion of their lost wages. 
it's a multi-week duration program. While there's federal guidelines, every state does have its own set of additional requirements. But the basic program in most states provides about 26 weeks of benefits to unemployed workers and replaces about half of their previous wages up to a certain maximum benefit amount, which is set by each state. Right. And we're familiar with those issues being legislature. You know, that we, we see bills every year to talk about the levels of benefits and the conditions for people getting employment insurance benefits and the way the money comes into these trust funds from employers and so forth. So we're used to seeing multiple bills in the Maryland General Assembly. I'm sure it's the same in every state capital. This is an, an ongoing hands-on administration and policy question for, for state-level leaders. I think it's interesting that you know this is a really a program that's run by the states. It's overseen by the feds. The feds do kick in some money, but unemployment insurance generally, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is supposed to be a bridge between jobs, right? It's when they're trying to find a new job, it gives them some time to sit back and make a a good decision on where they're going to go once they lose their job. But we've never seen such a pressure on the system as we have with the COVID-19 pandemic, with so many people losing their jobs. And particularly in Maryland, I mean, we know that there's been a rush on the unemployment benefits website. That has been a topic of conversation, of contention between the legislature and the executive branch. I mean, Michael, what are your thoughts on that? I know it's a sensitive subject and it's, it's difficult for everybody, but what do you think about that? I mean, big picture thought, I don't think there's anything non-obvious here, but Maryland, like every state, has an infrastructure for people to show up, file their paperwork, and claim benefits. And And correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, but I think Maryland's like most states where in order to re- keep receiving benefits, you have to document that you have been pursuing job opportunities that you, yes. you know, you send out, you know, you send out resumes or you applied for various things, or you went on interviews and so forth. So, but a lot of that, a lot of that system is old school. It's going to a building and talking to a person face to face. So we get this double whammy because of this one of a kind circumstance where not only the, you know, the waves of Marylanders who are suddenly out of work and in position to file claims for unemployment was whatever, you know, 10 or 15 times what anybody ever would have guessed would have happened in one week. And at the same time, there's a social concern about being face-to-face. The, the state government is shutting down most of its face-to-face offices and saying, we're going to try and conduct businesses in alternative and safe remote ways. So suddenly this giant wave of people don't have a building to go to. They say, well, I guess I have to call on the telephone line or I have to use the website or app or whatever. And all that infrastructure just, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say just wasn't ready to handle this overwhelming wave of Marylanders in need of help. Right. So it sounds like people trying to figure out a new system on top of really the, the, the site being overwhelmed and in some cases having trouble keeping up with that traffic. We see that all the time on websites or apps when you have a huge surge. It, it's not really prepared to handle that. But I agree. I think most states are dealing with this issue. It's a complicated issue. I know that there are very smart people trying to solve the issue and make sure that people are able to access the website and then maybe call people on the phone if they need additional assistance. But it is a new challenge for everyone. 
for the people that are trying to access their benefits that they deserve and also for the people that are at the Department of Labor running this show and trying to make sure that they can keep up with the demand. It's, it's certainly a challenge, no doubt. I mean, one thing that we've seen is if you're an elected official and you're trying to do contact with your constituents, whether you're a member of Congress or a county council member or a county commissioner, and you say, let's just have a town hall forum. I want to hear what's on your mind. And you end up with 60 people dialing into a Zoom room or the equivalent sort of thing. And let's, you know, let's go for 90 minutes and talk about what's going on. You end up hearing just a seemingly endless barrage of, you know, a dozen and a half of your constituents with nightmare stories of, I can't get through. I haven't gotten a check. I've been out of work for five weeks. I've got no money. And I don't think anybody set out to undermine the program, but this is supposed to be a social safety net without the net. I mean, there are a lot of people who are like, this is items one, two, and three on their issue of concern if they can't feed their family. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break. We've talked a lot about the state of unemployment right now, how many people have lost their jobs. This is unprecedented. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Congress has done, and we're going to talk about some issues that really hit home with county governments and nonprofits. All that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Drew Jabin. On the front half, we talked a lot about what is the current state of unemployment, the current state of the economy. We talked about some issues here in Maryland. And let's get into some federal government issues now with unemployment, with the CARES Act, what the feds have been doing. We've talked about the huge number of layoffs, business shutdowns, et cetera. The numbers are off the charts. I believe now 44 million Americans as of today have lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic. And we know that Congress has acted. I think all of us can agree they haven't done enough, and we hope that they're going to do more. But Drew, you mentioned that unemployment, the program generally provides 26 weeks of benefits to unemployed workers. What has Congress done to sort of beef up this program to try and help states deal with the the influx of claims and then also making sure people have a longer term solution should they not be able to get back to work? So they have the, I mean, there's the extended benefits program, which provides an additional 13 or 20 weeks of compensation to those who are jobless, who have exhausted their regular unemployment insurance benefits in unemployment situations that have worsened dramatically, regardless of whether the national economy is in a recession or not. So we have that program generally, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And normally it's split between the states and federal government for the cost of it. But with the CARES Act, the federal government is providing full funding for the extended benefits program through the end of the year. And it's also providing an extra $600 a week if you lost your job specifically because of the pandemic. 
Mm. So I think the first part of that is pretty familiar. When we've had economic downturns in the past, it's been pretty common for Congress to come through and say, we recognize that the vanilla benefit might not apply to people who simply don't have a decent opportunity right now. So if you've exhausted your six months, we'll tack on an extra number of weeks. You know, here's an extra two more, you know, three months or six months or whatever on top of your usual duration. I recall seeing that in the past, the add-on funding, the extra $600 per week, I think was a one-of-a-kind recognition of the unusual and abrupt nature of this crisis and a sense that, you know, if you just lost your job as, as a bartender, um, the, the likelihood, you know, of this coming back in six weeks or 10 weeks seemed awfully remote. So we recognize this is different. So pandemic job loss, being in a different category and kicking in an extra benefit was a, the first time we've seen that particular offering from the feds. Yeah, and you have to think about how extraordinary these circumstances are. This pandemic, we haven't seen anything like this. There's no real end in sight of when the world is going to go back to normal. Yeah, even as we look around now, and Maryland, like most states, is somewhere amidst a multi-stage process of reopening, and we're seeing things like swimming pools back open and, and barber shops and style salons and restaurants and bars and all these things at various, you know, limited capacity and social distancing, but you can get back open and get back to business. You know, a restaurant with 30% capacity or 50% capacity at max is still not the same sort of business enterprise that it was six months ago when you could have every chair filled, you know, with, with people ordering dinner. Right? Exactly. No doubt. And when we talk about what Congress is doing, when we talk about the potential next round of federal funding, that's something that the National Association of Counties, MACO, all the county associations, state associations are really pushing for that direct funding to state and local governments. But when it comes to funding for workers and providing extra benefits, this issue has really gotten partisan. There is this idea in Congress with some folks, they really don't like the idea of giving people more money when they're unemployed than when they're working. That's become a talking point. So people who are out of work are collecting a check and they're making more money than they did when they were working. That's, that's the claim. And I'm sure that's true in some circumstances, but that's really, I think, muddied the waters a bit when it comes to what Congress can do moving forward. They, they, they've said now, I think the Senate has said they're not going to act until July. They want to see what happens as states start to reopen. We know the House has passed a massive package that would provide that money to state and local governments as well as unemployed workers, making sure that those benefits are beefed up for them. But how do you think the partisan politics play here when it comes to providing more money for unemployed workers and that whole issue of more when you're not working than when you're working? It seems as though the way we deal with unemployment benefits has become a central sticking point that's left Congress just stuck on what to do with this issue broadly. So, yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've been working pretty closely with the National Association of Counties. They're part of a coalition along with state and local government leadership groups trying, you know, trying to say that we need another assistance package. We talked about this on previous offerings of the podcast, but 
a centerpiece of what state and local governments are asking for is for the federal government to help out with what we know is going to be a deep pocket of lost revenue. And whatever exactly that looks like and how many dollars and what combination of state and county and city and so forth is kind of beside the point. But as a centerpiece issue, we're saying you got to pass a big bill and it needs to say, let's keep all these local services kind of as maybe a parallel social safety net, right? We, I mean, you don't want to have cities and counties and even states going bankrupt or laying off a third of their workforce, the kind of people who are supposed to be providing public service in tough times. You don't want to have that happen. The federal government has a different kind of capacity than state and local governments who all have year-to-year balanced budget requirements. So this is kind of like a FEMA situation where we're all in an emergency and the federal government is where we have the pooled resources to pull us through it. Um, Issues like what do you do with unemployment? Um, How much do you care about the prospects of the employers versus the employees? And that naturally has a partisan tinge. There's going to be a a red point of view and a blue point of view. Uh, This seems to be one of the issues where they don't see eye to eye. And uh, it's become now, I think, almost a political trope of this, this worker who now is happily sitting back, making all this money because of the federal handout, and particularly senators in the majority party in the U.S. Senate have been saying, we made a mistake by making these unemployment insurance benefits too generous. We don't want to do that again. And we're reluctant to do things that are, quote unquote, pro at the expense of the employers who need people to come back to work. So that's a circuitous way of saying Washington is in its natural state of affairs, which is more or less political gridlock. And those of us counting on them for a solution are pacing the floors, wondering if anything can cut loose. I think that's a great way to put it. And they are in their general posture of gridlock. We saw them act fast before when we really needed to get money out the door and back into the economy. But now... Certain things are complicating the issue, and you're right. State and local governments are waiting, and also unemployed workers. Uh, everybody wants to get the economy moving again, but I, I agree with you that it's become a partisan issue. It's you know the, the employer versus the employee and how those political philosophies align is complicating things for sure. Drew, we then have this issue that is related specifically to nonprofits and local governments. And it, this is all about the imperfect fit when you don't pay into insurance programs and you just pay benefits, right? This has become an issue. We've had a coalition of folks working with us. We've had some legislative leaders. What is this issue that's bubbled up when it comes to you know, the insurance program versus benefits, specifically for counties and for nonprofits? Yeah, so for most for-profit businesses, they pay the unemployment insurance contribution rate, and counties, as well as many other nonprofits, choose to be direct reimbursement employers. So that means that they basically choose not to pay the quarterly unemployment contributions and instead pay immediate reimbursement on a dollar-for-dollar basis for unemployment benefits that are awarded to former employees. Counties and nonprofits choose to do this due to size and stability of the yeah. workforce. So it's like being self-insured. Like we're, we're kind of familiar with that. A lot of our larger counties, rather than getting a health insurance policy, they say, we're just going to go ahead and pay the benefits. We'll have someone administer a program, but rather than pay an insurance premium, we'll just pay our, our health costs. So same yes. kind of concept. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And now it's weird because of the pandemic. There's extreme budgetary difficulties. Counties are finalizing their fiscal year 21 budgets. They're planning for increases in spending, decreases in revenues. Local governments are on the front line, obviously, of maintaining public safety, providing health care, and just so many critical functions that can't stop. They're key to the health and safety of everyone. Yeah. Definitely increased costs as, as local governments, as counties react to the pandemic. And then we know we've talked a lot about what's going to happen with revenues for fiscal 20, and more likely there's going to be a huge crater in fiscal 21. So, Drew, you're saying that there's the counties and the nonprofits do this a different way. Michael made clear that this is sort of like being self-insured. Counties and nonprofits typically have pretty stable workforces, so they're not dealing with a lot of turnover in terms of employees. But now with, with this pandemic, this is causing an issue, right? And there is an inequity here in terms of what the feds are doing to ease the burden on employers, right? So currently there's already legislative authority in place for for-profit employers that pay the contribution rate to delay those payments until next year, April 2021. When that happens, it'll be the adjusted tax rates will begin to basically phase in the pandemic-related unemployment liability. We have a trust fund in Maryland, and basically everybody gets an assessment. This is what you owe for your unemployment insurance tax. And when people are drawing a bunch of benefits, more money needs to come into the trust fund, so we recalculate and send out a different bill, basically. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then there's counties and nonprofits, on the other hand, as reimbursing employers, they're going to be charged in the immediate future. Mm. So that's where kind of the inequity lies. And the CARES Act did attempt to address this. They basically said they'll provide for federal reimbursement of 50% of covid unemployment costs to state, local governments, and reimbursing nonprofits. But in order to be able to do this, 100% needs to be paid, and then you will get reimbursed for 50%. You have to pay out 100%, and then the feds will reimburse for 50%. Basically, yes. The Maryland Department of Labor, Secretary Tiffany Robinson, already has said, she wrote a letter to the Economic Matters Committee saying that Maryland's Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund will not be able to handle waiving the cost for both reimbursable and contributory employers while continuing to provide for the record amount of Marylanders applying for this. So then the question is now, what what happens? What do we do? Right. Again, it's just like we're dealing with a wave of people deserving unemployment benefits That's just an order of magnitude larger than what anybody ever guessed could happen overnight. So, uh, I mean, it it puts us in a tough spot, both with the cost itself, but also the the rapid timing. We don't get that that window of time to, well, we're going to feel this later. We're going to feel it right away. Right. And, and, you know, even paying 50% of these costs immediately certainly will create strain on nonprofits and on counties. I understand that maybe the feds will reimburse 50, but again, you have to pay out that 100% right away. And when you do have these revenue gaps, the liquidity issues that could arise as a result of delayed income tax distributions from the state, because we've we've extended the, the deadline for income tax payments, there could be a gap there. And if counties are having to pay this money right away, it seems like that could be potentially an issue. And Drew, I know that you've been working with 
your colleagues in certain industries to try and address this inequity. I mean, what is the current state? What are we doing? What is Mako's role in all of this to try and make us equitable with the for-profit folks? MAKO, MML, Maryland nonprofits, legislators, especially Senator Cheryl Kagan, has been a great, great lead on this. All sent a letter to Governor Hogan asking for immediate executive action, basically giving reimbursing employers the same relief as rate paying employers in the form of deferred liability of those repayments. So we would have basically the same timeline as everyone else. There's also the possibility of a technical fix to a certain section, Section 2103 of the CARES Act, to allow for reimbursable employers to qualify for that 50% reimbursement without paying 100% upfront. So those are all things that we've been involved with, working with a bunch of stakeholders in this. It's, it's an issue that's not just affecting counties. It's, it's a lot of people are being affected by this. Right. So it sounds like potential fix in the CARES Act, it could be on the table. You would still have to pay 50%, which again, is not ideal. I think the ideal solution would be everybody's treated equitably. You can kick those payments down the line when things are a little bit better and you have a little bit more room to breathe. But without that technical fix and with Congress being gridlocked, it sounds like Maryland, you know, these nonprofits and counties and municipalities are asking the governor to try and step in. But Michael, we heard you earlier say that, you know, Tiffany Robinson, the Secretary of Labor, has said, we don't have enough money to defer all of these payments down the line. We need money coming in so that we can pay out these benefits. I mean, without federal action, uh, you know, what can we do to, to make sure that counties and nonprofits are not in a really, really bad position and that they're not able to delay these payments like everybody else? I mean, what, what would happen absent the governor taking action or absent federal action? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, Drew's summary was right on point where we might be beyond the frontier of what the state government can do by just an executive order or, you know, some administrative relief. So, you know, if the secretary says, listen, that there's not enough money in the trust fund, we got to pay benefits. We need to have a balance in the checking account. We can't just keep writing checks. So um, if that's really the practical case here, I mean, you know, the whole structure was designed for when unemployment bumps from 4% to 5 or 6, then you can handle that wave of claims, not 14 and not even 10. So we just, you know, we're, 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 we're through the looking glass in what this momentary economy looks and feels like. Um, that, that suggests that the real answer should come from the feds. And then we're back to the same conversation about does Congress and the executive branch and the federal government, do they have the wherewithal and do they have any kind of a coalition to pull together a multi-part bill that handles multiple things that are on their docket? But this is certainly one of them. We're, I mean, it's not like this is a unique to Maryland issue. I'm sure that governments and nonprofits across the country are finding themselves in exactly this same conundrum. And their states are probably saying, we just don't have the ability to give you a year off. So, you know, we can't give you the relief you want. Call your congressional delegation. So we'll do that. But we're doing that in hopes of, you know, some sort of parting of the red and blue sea down there to get something to work out. A precarious position for sure. So much of this relies on Congress to get their act together. Again, we saw them act quickly, but now things are at a standstill. And it seems like they're going to be at a standstill at least through June. 
But we're hopeful that not only on this issue of unemployment, which is a big one, but also, again, on the issue of providing direct aid to state and local governments to fill these massive revenue gaps that we're going to see. And, you know, I, I, I think that you're right. I think that if the states are saying we don't have the money to give you the ability to defer, it's, it has to come from the feds. And if it doesn't, I don't see how we're going to fix this. So hopefully, you know, we can get that done. But Drew, we really appreciate your work on this. I know you've spent a lot of time with the municipalities and with the nonprofits, with Senator Kagan and other legislators, drafting letters, calling back and forth, trying to get everybody on the same page. But it sounds like there is a united message at this point from the local governments in Maryland, from the nonprofits, that we need this help, we need it now, and we need to be treated equitably with the for-profit employers when it comes to unemployment insurance. Yes, definitely. Very good. Michael and Drew, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Any final thoughts before we close out today? Anything on your mind that you'd like to talk about? I know we're all craving this social interaction, so I'm open to anything. <laughs> I, I don't I don't have anything too profound. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the workforce as we talk about unemployment and by and large, we've been talking about the private sector and the impacts that have been felt there. I can't help but also think about what might be around the corner in the public sector. And we've made allusions to this about what what a budget for a county government might look like today and what it might look like three months from now as we see what income tax feels and looks like um, and what's going to happen with things like commercial property and so forth. But if we really have a structural erosion of revenues in local governments, and if the federal government isn't inclined to show up with a parachute, uh, we could find ourselves very much in this unemployment conversation by way of our own employees. We So far, we haven't seen counties having to do these long-term furloughs and layoffs of employees and things of that nature, but we're not all that far removed from that happening. And I'd hate to have to, as much as I've enjoyed having Drew on this round of the podcast, I don't want to be back in two or three months talking about unemployment again, <laughs> but instead about all the county employees who are now in line for unemployment checks. Right. And, you know, that, that all comes back, Michael, to what you were saying earlier, that, you know, counties and states have to balance their budgets. We can't run deficits like the feds can. And so, you know, you're right. We haven't seen counties doing, you know, furloughs as of yet. But I think once the the picture becomes more clear for fiscal 21, once we see the true effect of income tax and things like recordation and admissions and amusement, hotel taxes, those are all things that are going to suffer because of this pandemic. And counties are going to have to make tough choices. And hopefully it will not involve their workforces. But we know counties have to continue to provide essential services. That's what we do each and every day. And Drew, yes, I, I loved having you on today. It was great. But I don't want you back here in a couple of months either because Hopefully, we're going to get that assistance from the feds and things are going to work out okay. But Drew, any closing thoughts from you before we wrap up today? Not really. Just everyone should tune into the Mako Summer Series. It's going to be great. And I'm excited. We'll leave it there today. Drew, again, thanks so much for being with us. You did a great job explaining this issue and we really appreciate having you on. Thanks. Okay. For Michael and Drew, this is Kevin signing off. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But until next week, we'll leave it there. 
For Michael and for Drew, this is Kevin. We'll talk to you soon.